Hello and welcome to Virtual Philanthropy. I'm your host, DJ Jacobs. Virtual Philanthropy is a donor-led virtual tour of the grant-making process. Donors walk us through how they find potential organizations and ultimately decide how to fund them. Today's person in philanthropy is Nina Blackwell with the Firelight Foundation. Welcome, Nina. Thank you, EJ. I'm absolutely delighted to be here and I'm thrilled that you are creating room for these conversations. You're my very first phone caller, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sad to not see you face-to-face, but we've seen each other face-to-face quite a few times, so can you tell us uh, about yourself and Firelight Foundation? So Firelight is a multi-donor fund. Uh, we raise capital um, from both individual donors, from small family foundations, and from larger foundations with the goal of building the capacity of catalytic uh, and influential community-based organisations that are based in southern and eastern Africa and are looking at addressing significant gaps and opportunities for children. We work with those community-based organisations, providing grants, providing very intimate mentoring to them as individual organisations, but also we support them in what we call clusters or communities of practice to support their work to not only serve children better, serve families better, but also to address the system in which those children and families live. The other mandate for Firelight is to build the evidence to leverage the networks that support the local African institutions of community. So a belief that community is important in child development, a belief that community is important in the development of Africa, a belief that it, community is effective, uh, the evidence that community is effective, and the institutions that might support that locally. That's quite a lot of work that you've put on your shoulders there at Firelight. <laughs> Before I start anything, do you want to sort of talk about how it is, how that process is for you? Mm, thanks. It is a really extraordinary place to be as an organization because we do have experience ourselves as a grantee, particularly from larger foundations, but also from uh, smaller foundations and individual donors. And then we have this perspective as a donor ourselves or a re-granting organization. And it really does give you a very precious but I think also very important place in the ecosystem. It's a place we don't take for granted. What we believe our role is, is to make sure we are always paying attention to the voices, the realities, the desires, the future goals of community-based organizations, of our own grantees, and making sure their voices are heard to larger donors, to those who may not be able to support them directly but can have a very direct influence on their lives. I think we have to be very cognizant that not a lot of foundations, particularly larger foundations, have the staff or the capacity to make investments in smaller institutions. And it's important for organizations like Firelight to be the most active 
representative to foundations on behalf of our grantee partners. But if we don't play that role correctly, if we're not humble and we don't recognise consistently where we need to express our voice and on, on behalf of whom, um, we will be at risk of um, of not playing this role well. So we value it very much as a very precious place. Uh, and we take the responsibility very seriously. But you're right, we know what it's like to be both donor and grantee. I can imagine it, it may or may not be the case that when you have donors who are coming in to help you do the work, but you're also choosing grantees in the ground, there can be some people, maybe some sort of swaying from above or around you saying, we should really be funding this people, this group or these people. Do you have that happening at all? We do. Uh, and it's a really great, um, as a, you point out, it's a really great opportunity for Firelight to continue to play a role of voicing the realities, the needs and the um, the sort of long-term goals of community-based organisations to a donor. Uh, at times, because we know there is unfortunately a massive power differential between donors and particularly smaller or more community-based grantee partners, we really have to make sure that Firelight plays a strong role and provides a strong voice in conjunction with our grantee partners. So we have had uh, donors who have wanted to be in relationship with Firelight but may have come with very, very strong perspectives of their own on what grantees should look like, on what perhaps success should look like. And for us, what we want to do in cases like that is be really honest with donor partners. This is the reality for community-based organisations. This is how Firelight views them and what success might mean for them. This is how Firelight uh, has, after 20 years of grant-making, um, really honed in on a model for community-driven uh, systems change. This is what we would recommend you take into account. And sometimes that means that a donor won't be very happy with us. Sometimes it means that we have to say no because we may find that we are working with a donor who has expectations that are different or is aligned um, about the mechanisms for change um, or misaligned perhaps, the alignment is off. Sometimes it means that we have to say no. But more often than not, I get really excited when donors are able to change their own perceptions and we can actually achieve their goals as well as the goals of the community and the community-based organisations themselves. Before we move on, you made a, a great point there that I just wanted to sort of explore a bit more. Mm. And telling donors no is something that we tell nonprofits quite often that they can't say that it, it, it actually is better to do that than to take money that's not going to favour them. But 
I think it's really hard to tell organisations that are suffering, especially financially, that they should turn down money. So how does that process work? Obviously, it's a bit different when you're regranted, but at the same time, you are still turning down donor dollars. What do you recommend or how, do, how would you talk to non-profits who are in similar situations where they feel like there is money coming in that might lead them astray from their, their main mission? It's a great point and a really big challenge. I think I might start by saying that in the first place, if possible, the establishment of the relationship and the establishment of a dialogue about each entity's goals, mechanisms of operating um, limits, so limitations on what they can and cannot do. We, I would really encourage donors to be open to grantees who want to tell them the truth. And I would encourage grantees to be as open and transparent about um, beneficiary numbers, about what kind of change is possible in a short period of time, about how much it costs to execute a particular program or achieve a certain goal. I think in the very beginning, the best thing I think would be for us all to be able to have more open and transparent conversations. I think that might remove some of those very difficult possible decisions about saying no to a donor. But I would encourage organizations to be willing to say no, not because it is easy to do or that it should be easy to do, but because over and over we have seen that the cost of saying yes can be so detrimental to an organization that it might be okay in the short term, but it will not be okay in the long run. I have seen and talked to organizations who have spent so much time servicing donors who are giving small amounts of money for extraordinary expectations that can't be met And that fails us all. So I would challenge everyone to be more open and more transparent in the beginning. But I also want to make sure that nonprofits have the option or the full disclosure of information that sometimes taking a grant may the expense of taking that or the sacrifices you make in taking that grant may be so extraordinary over the long term that it is going to be better to try and find other funding sources, whether those funding sources are from the community itself or from another donor. There's no question that good organisations need capital There's no question that every day children need support and it sounds awful and difficult to say, turn down money. But if that money is going to continue to restrict your organization or it's going to continue to force you to make false promises or to pretend that the impact is there when it's not, 
not only will your organisation not be well served, but the system as a whole will not be well served. Having non-profits listen to what we're saying here and thinking, you know, it's almost like a breakup when you say it's not you, it's me, that no one actually believes that it's, (laughs) that it's literally, no, of course it's me. Uh, So I, I understand what you're saying for donors in terms of what they should be doing, but for non-profits, being able to say no, how do they ensure that, that, that they understand it really is not you, it's me? How do they make sure that that's not an end of a relationship or an acrimonious end to a relationship? Just because they couldn't take funding at this moment, maybe something changes yeah. later on. Honestly, EJ, I would say that if you are open and honest with your donor and they take that to be an acrimonious step or a hostile step, then you didn't want that donor's money anyway. If you saying no to a donor at a particular juncture is interpreted as um, hostile or unwilling or unhelpful, then in reality, you know that you don't want that donor's money. You don't want a donor who is going to judge you for being honest and open and transparent and judge you negatively for it. Before we get to the virtual tour, I'd love for you to take this time to shamelessly plug something. My shameless plug, I think, at the moment is actually um, one of excitement and anticipation. And it's a plug to both grantees and donors, and it's this. What we are seeing after 20 years of grant-making to and mentoring community-based organisations that support children and the systems in which children live, we are now seeing a legitimate resurgence of interest in and the, the validity of or the belief in the role that community-based action and community-based organisations need to, have to play in shifting permanent systems for children. I am really excited about these new trends. It doesn't mean that community-driven development concepts or processes are new. These have pre-existed for generations. But what I'm excited about is We're actually seeing and hearing more commitment to valuing community-based organisations and more commitment to valuing community-driven change than we ever have before. And I'll say that because we see a realisation in children's rights that the realisation of the rights of the child has to be at that community and family level. We see in looking at HIV transmission rates, we see that large global health systems have been so important in reducing HIV and AIDS, but the last step needs to be driven by communities themselves. We see so much excitement, and particularly in our field, around the the acknowledgement that Early childhood and early childhood development, nurturing, care has to start at the community level. And so I'm super excited about increasing levels of evidence that 
communities are powerful and can be very transformative in shifting systems for children. A lot more evidence than there used to be, a lot more commitment on the behalf of donors, and a lot more tools that facilitate donors to do it well. And that is from the individual donor to the small family foundation to the large institutional donor. There are more tools, there's more research. And so my shameless plug is to really think about some of those Re, that the evidence that is emerging and the tools that are emerging. We're very lucky here at Firelight that we have been able to conduct substantial research on what it will take to support community-based organisations. So we have new tools and we do want to make them available to donors and community-based organisations alike. I'm excited that the momentum is there. And huge on evidence as well, so I'm really happy to hear that shameless plug. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. So without further ado, I'm going to have you lead us on your virtual tour. How do people who are running organisations, obviously at the, at the CBO or community-based organisational level, uh, come to find out about Firelight and how do they actually become grantees of Firelight? Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting process um, and one that we've really learned a lot about over the last 20 years, obviously. What Firelight does is we start by actually um, having active conversations with community networks, with community-based organisations and with community leaders, with policymakers, with other representatives of civil society in the countries in which we fund. Now, Firelight has, uh, for the last 20 years, funded in up to 12 countries in southern and eastern Africa. Today, we fund in five countries um, and are exploring relationships in two others. So what's important for Firelight is, like any donor perhaps, but certainly a donor that is really interested in where community believes they can affect their own change for children. We keep a pulse on where the biggest challenges might be for children, where community could be the most helpful. We then, because we're now a donor-enabled fund, we will go and really work with larger institutions, with family foundations, with individual donors on helping us build a fund to address the challenges that community believes are the most present. Once we have built that fund, Firelight has staff in Africa, we have advisors in Africa, we have networks in Africa. So we will actively seek out community-based organisations. We work um, actively with government representatives and other policymakers, and as I said, with other civil society to seek out community-based organisations. We will um, often um, publish a call for proposals, but we are very cognizant that a lot of community-born and raised organisations may not be able to access a published call for proposals. So we fund and support a process of finding those organisations ourselves. 
It's really important for Firelight to do that because we don't just want to fund organisations who can already find us. The next thing we do, it's really important for Firelight to interact with our grantees on a reasonably intimate basis. And obviously that's not always possible for every donor to do, but it's part of Firelight's value add and in both understanding community-based organisations but contributing to the knowledge base and the capacity of larger donors to fund community-based organisations. So we will go and meet with community-based organisations. We have tools that we have developed to assess their organisational capacity, to engage them on issues such as children's rights, um, their understanding of children's nurturing the systems in which children live. But interestingly enough, we, pro we really do prioritise connectedness to the community. We prioritise a belief in community capacity. We prioritise the community's view of an organisation, so the organisation's reputation amongst its key stakeholders. We prioritise those things above any other traditional form of capacity. So we don't necessitate that organisations are registered. We don't need them to already have um, super effective financial monitoring systems. What we look for are organisations that are both connected to community, that view their role as serving or engaging community and about whom the community has really positive perspectives. One thing I think we find is not acceptable um, is when we, if we might find an organisation that prioritises their own reputation above their connectedness to community. So we don't fund organisations that walk down to community, exercise inappropriate power over their communities. We don't uh, tend to fund organisations that are um, that just see community as a means to a project outcome. We want to support organisations that have an inherent belief in the power of community to make its own long-term change. And we do look for, as in we would not fund, organisations that are not willing to look at their own values, their own operations, and be open to learning and change. So we look for organisations that are open to input from community, are open to adaptation, are open to change. And listening to this and thinking about well, quite a few things. The the first one that comes to my mind is the the difficulty it is to get not just the, the CBOs to get to some of the conferences out there and some of the spaces that donors do occupy, but as a relatively small foundation, funding at a small level, you really can't be there the same way a larger foundation would be at most of the conferences. So it's almost like a catch twenty two. Some of the smaller grassroots organizations will try to get to some of the larger conferences out there, but the donors who are there are just too big for them. 
get a funder like you is actually <laughs> perfectly suited for these kinds of CBOs in organizations. However, you're, you can't be everywhere. So how do you address that dilemma? Besides, obviously, you, said yeah. you put up the call for, for proposal, but as you've mentioned, that might not be reachable by everybody. You're exactly right, and I think that is going to have to be the sort of the one of these larger questions that um, an organisation like Firelight really grapples with. So, what does it mean to not just play this role well? So, increase the level of connectivity between donors and community-based grantees. But what does the infrastructure look like that will encourage or facilitate more giving to community-based organisations with or without Firelight? So, one of the interesting challenges that we are exploring and a goal that we are setting for ourselves is... Can we support local African community foundations, local African grant makers? Can we support institutions like that that will be facilitators, that will can play something of an interlocutor role like Firelight does without Firelight having to be everywhere? It's both really consistent with our belief that it isn't our change to make. But it's also really exciting to think that if we could in those ways harness donor excitement about community, that it may not have to be through Firelight itself. But the second thing I would say, EJ, is I think we really have to challenge ourselves as a global donor community, but recognizing the reality that the minority world or the global north is where the funding comes from. We, as members of that global north paradigm, have to challenge ourselves to get out of the global north. We have to... Um, have our meetings, have our convenings where our grantees are. We have to open our conversations to grantees themselves. We have to include money in our grants to support community-based organizations to travel to donor conferences and to present at donor conferences. We have to make some of those active decisions and support them in order to shift some of these power dynamics. So there's a situation I, uh, that you may or may not come across that I've seen. Sometimes you're in the middle of the vetting process for one organization, and yet they've got funding throughout the course of your vetting to sort of change parts of their mandate uh, from another funder. How do you, within the course of you vetting them and figuring out whether they're actually a good fit for your funding, uh, decide how to go further with them. How do you make that decision in terms of do you stop funding? Do you ask them to sort of reconsider? What's the route that you take there? I'm not sure if you've actually encountered that in your work. I know I've, I've encountered that in mine. 
It's a really interesting question, and we're at a little bit more of an advantage at Firelight because we fund the organisation and its its growth and health writ large. Um, we don't fund projects or programs. We may fund a project or program as part of an organisation's um, actions, activity, or their commitment to sort of long-term change. But wonderfully at Firelight, we're investing in the strength and the resilience of community-based institutions, period. We So we have less challenge with an organisation that might have accepted money to run a project that diverts from some kind of project goal that Firelight might have because we support them to undertake whatever projects they believe are the right ones for children. So we're a little bit less uh, confronted by that kind of challenge. I think if we encountered something that ran a red flag for us, so a set of behaviours or the acceptance of donor funding that um, seemed unethical, I think those would be challenges for us. But we're lucky in that we're investing in the institution as a whole and its internal and external resilience and impact for children. Um, so we're not often challenged by um, them wanting to go in a different direction, perhaps. You've touched upon some sort of unacceptable behaviours or red flags. What are some unacceptable yeah. mistakes that are made? We actually don't have unacceptable mistakes because we make a commitment at Firelight to support organisations. We try to make a commitment. While we are donor-enabled ourselves, so we need the money to do it, um, we try to make a commitment to fund grantee partners for between three to five years. And so we inherently value mistakes. We have a very clear and stated learning and evaluation structure that embraces learning as a means to positive improvement. So we don't take a punitive approach to learning, to data collection, to definitions of impact. We embrace mistakes as ways of understanding what we could have done better and making change. We embrace transparency in mistakes within the community, within our grantees, and we value it within ourselves. I think that... There might be, in fact, there always will be egregious mistakes that might involve um, abuse of a child or abuse of community members. Those things, though, I would hazard are not mistakes. If you inherently don't value the role of community such that you respect it or you don't inherently believe in the rights or protection of children so therefore you abuse that 
then I'm not sure that that's a mistake. But those are things that absolutely would push us to end a relationship with a grantee partner. It's great that you're promoting failing forward. I think this is something that we've been trying to push in philanthropy for a while. So it's good to see some, some donors taking that on. Thank you. Our pleasure. It's very, very fundamental to who we are at Firelight. And it is a big shift for larger donors. There's no question that we've all been under the influence for some time now of the big change at scale mantra. And that was well-intentioned, but we have seen the limitations of it. We've now recognized that we have made some big changes at scale. The realization of those changes over the long period without external help will only come from communities themselves and will only be embraced if we help people learn and grow rather than punishing them for behavior that they um, that they may have developed over many generations. Well, thank you for that virtual tour. I think that's actually quite comprehensive. Thank you very much. My pleasure. On to the next area, which is uh, mistaken identity. I'm imagining that you get plenty of organizations that come to you from West Africa or Central Africa, Northern Africa, who say, we've seen your website, we've seen the work you've done, we think you'd be a great fit for us. How do you handle those situations? You know, it's really um, important for us to be super transparent up front. Um, one of the other things, um, or in fact, sort of more of the requests for funding that are not well placed, um, the requests to Firelight that come in come less from West Africa or Central Africa, for example, but actually from organisations that are not community-born and raised. And it's really important for people to understand that Firelight um, exclusively funds organizations that have been born and raised in community and are led by community leaders. We know there's value in all other types of organizations from national NGOs to international NGOs. We see value in all of those institutions. But where we see the greatest power and capacity and the least amount of validity, funding, share of voice, evidence is in support for community-based organizations. So interestingly enough, AJ, we get more requests that are not, um, we're not able to fund from organizations that are um, operating in Africa but run perhaps by a non-African or an expat. We get more requests for, from organizations that are in Africa but might have been founded by um, a well-educated, um, thoughtful person from a capital city and they've created an NGO. Um, we love indigenous, non-governmental organizations, but what Firelight funds are those that were born and raised in community. And so I'm really honest and really honest up front with people. I'm also really honest with the fact that we 
are donor enabled. So we do need to raise the capital in order to make our grants. And that often will limit what we can and can't do at any given time. But I find that honesty and transparency is the best policy. What would be some of your do's and don'ts for those organisations? Yeah, so I think giving them kind of do's and don'ts vis-a-vis donors is a really interesting challenge because you and I have talked about this sort of inappropriate power differential that exists. But I think constructive do's and don'ts for grantees who might be looking for donors is genuinely, and this is probably said a lot, do make sure that you're thinking about um, asking the right people. There's nothing wrong with asking many people. You should feel free to ask as many donors as you like to fund your organisation. But do um, do play, pay, pay special attention to what donors um, have as their own mandate. But I would say don't be afraid. Don't believe that you will not be funded by someone or that you don't deserve their funding or that you need to twist yourselves into knots in order to achieve that funding. Value what you do. Value the leadership at your organization. Even if the leadership is not um, what traditional donors might be looking for, even if your leadership does not speak English as a first language, even if your leadership didn't go to university, don't be afraid. What you are doing as an organization is worthwhile. Present that. It will create relationships with donors that are true and genuine rather than those that are transactional and those that contain um, you know, at best, um, people contriving to fit themselves into an agenda. At worst, they will contain falsehoods. Value what you do. And I would say don't, as an NGO or a non-profit or community-based organization, don't twist yourself in a knot to fit into a project or a program or to fit into a donor's mandate if in the long term, it is going to be more detrimental for your organisation. Are there any experiences that you would like to share uh, based on what you've just said here, good or bad? Most people tend to yeah. focus on the good, but feel free to share either one. I'll, I'll draw on some of the ones that have happened recently to me um, and to our organisation, and that is pretty consistent with some of the themes that I've been bringing up, which are... I genuinely feel that there is an increasing level of conversation about commitment to evidence around desire for tools around giving um, to community or enabling community to be part of the development paradigm, to give them an increasing share of voice, 
to give them the evidence um, that they deserve um, to create that evidence and, and provide that to donors. This is a real high for me. Um, I think we have, it's exciting for us to feel that. I'm excited that even in recent years, we see some of our community-based grantees um, being asked to sit on the national technical working groups for early childhood development or children's rights or secondary education. Really excited to see uh, our grantee partners taking the stage to present their work and their perspective to donors and to policymakers. Honestly, that's a huge high for me right now. I think a low um, is fairly consistent with some of these um, power paradigms as well. I find it to be difficult when I know that a donor prefers to talk to me as the Australian-born American resident, English-speaking executive director, as opposed to speaking to other members of my team or to engaging with um, other representatives who don't look like them. And I know my, there are, I, I know that it's probably not intentional and it happens to me more perhaps with prospective donors than our current donors. <laughs> but I'm challenged when I know that a donor is initiating conversations with me as a preference to speaking to members of my team who are born and raised in Africa or representatives from our community-based organization, grantee partners. That makes me really sad. How do you handle that when that happens? I've got to um, think about it really carefully. When I began at Firelight, I questioned my legitimacy in speaking for my grantee partners, for our grantee partners. I'm not African. Notwithstanding my heritage, I don't live in Africa. And I asked our grantee partners very openly whether or not it was okay for me to speak for them because I felt very uncomfortable appropriating their desires, their voice, and communicating that on their behalf. Wonderfully, our grantee partners helped me recognize that I am in a very privileged position. I'm privileged by the color of my skin. I'm privileged by my education. I'm privileged by my socioeconomic status. Merely living and being able to thrive in the domestic United States means that I have more advantages, particularly vis-a-vis -vis donors. So my grantees, our grantees were the ones that said, please understand that you have privilege. Please exercise it wisely. And I was thrilled to hear that I did have their 
blessing to speak on their behalf because it was the critical role that I play in their future resilience and their future outcomes. So while it makes me unhappy, I actually embrace it to a degree. If a donor wants to fund community and is willing to do it in the firelight way, then I am happy to be the spokesperson. As long as it doesn't permeate the whole relationship, I'm happy to be the communicator. Well, I've spent uh, the last bit of time asking you questions from me. So now I'll turn to questions asked by other people, mostly non-profits, uh, including yeah. ones that actually have some, some familiarity with, with Firelight. So the first question I'm posing to you is, Community-based organizations, CBOs, come in many shapes and sizes and budgets. How do you determine which CBOs are too big and which ones fit within your portfolio? Also, what is your advice to CBOs that have been funded for capacity building, but now find their budgets too big for traditional funders to CBOs, but still much too small for larger funders? Yeah, it's really interesting. And actually what I would do is, an interesting question. What I would first do, EJ, I think, is start by challenging us to question the concepts of small, large, too big, too small, because I think those are false paradigms for grant making. We support organizations that are born and raised in community regardless of their size. So we do fund some organizations that were born and raised in community who have now matured to become what one might consider to be a national NGO. But because their belief in community, their connectedness to community, their willingness to put the voices and power of the community first is so present and so much part of their DNA, it doesn't matter how big they are. It matters how they view the center of power and the value of community at that center. So I do want to challenge these concepts as small or large and particularly also vis-a-vis donors. I know it is more difficult for very large donors to transact small grants, but there are institutions like Firelight, there are institutions like the Kenya Community Development Foundation that can do that for donors and can transact those small grants. It doesn't have to be that the grant size determines or the donor size or the organization size determines the quality of that relationship. I would challenge all of those concepts. Um, I would challenge that a small organization um, is only able to be funded by a small donor. I would challenge that a big organization can't be funded by a small donor. So it's not so much for us, and I don't think it should be for other donors, that suddenly someone has become too big 
I think you need to ask the grantee, is our money worth it for you anymore? Are the reporting requirements that I've put in place for our money, are they too onerous for the small amount of money we're giving you? Is the small amount of money we're giving you, could we put it into a different bucket? Could we give it to you as organisational capacity capital or staff um, development capital? Could we give you the money for a different purpose now that your organisation has become larger? Could we think about pooling together additional capital with other donors to make our grants meaningful to an organisation that has become larger? And in terms of big organisations funding small, I think we have to dispel this notion that small is the antithesis of either scale or systems change. If you want to shift the systems, particularly those in which children live and that those systems in which children's rights and care and nurturing are either violated or supported, you have to support community um, entities, community infrastructure and community-based organisations. It simply can't be that you view them as too small. What you need to see is the size of their impact over a period of time and in a way that is sustainable versus their impact over one year period of time. Thank you for that. Uh, next question. Do you fund based on mission alignment or charisma and leadership of the respective NGO leader? Recently, I heard a donor say that if I don't like you, I will not fund you. Just wondering, how much do donors really look at impact versus the persona or personality of a respective NGO leader? I think it's really interesting because for Firelight, perhaps the two go hand in hand. I would challenge us to try to overcome traditional definitions of what a good leader looks like. So I would challenge the donor um, who said they won't fund you if they don't like you. Did you decide you didn't like the leader of the, of the organization because English wasn't their first language? Did you decide that you didn't like them because they don't have a graduate degree? Did you decide that you didn't like them because they couldn't communicate effectively enough in uh, a convoluted grant form that they couldn't outline their goals clearly enough for your grant-making process. If you decided you didn't like them for that reason, then I would ask donors to rethink. If, however, you decided that the leader was not a an ethical one, a servant one, a leader who valued their team, a leader who valued the manner in which they were going to achieve the project outcomes as well as the outcomes itself. If you decided you didn't like the leader for any of those reasons, then those are more legitimate. And I would say then they go to the legitimacy of the organization itself. I would also question whether or not you make a decision about alignment 
based on criteria that don't fit with your definition of impact or your definition of scale, I wonder, we need to question a lot of these things and I would challenge donors to think differently about what impact really means. Is it reaching the largest number of people with the most amount of services for the shortest period of time? Or is it about long-term change? I think impact is really important. I think sometimes the reverse has failed us where donors have gravitated towards a charismatic leader and the organisation itself is not impacting the beneficiaries, the community, the, um, the, 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 it's not having a positive impact on the people it says it should. So I would challenge us to think carefully about a leader, but not reject a leader if it's simply a matter of that they can't fill in the forms correctly or they don't have a graduate degree or um, you didn't find it was easy to communicate with them in English. I think the question around a leader is part of any organization's ethical and moral operations. And so I think that's a valid consideration. But I would consider both, but I wouldn't fund just on the leader either because we've seen so many examples of charismatic leaders whose organizations are built on sand. Thank you so much, Nina. It's been absolutely wonderful talking to you today. I want to get you out on one last question, which of course is about the future. Given the the idea of what community-based organizations can accomplish, I'm thinking in terms of donors I know who have said that they just feel like CBOs don't really have the same impact that they're looking for. They're looking for that systemic change. What is something that you would like your philanthropy with CBOs to eradicate or cure within your lifetime? Oh, I love that. Um, and actually, you, interestingly enough, vocalized what... I would like to change. And so I would say I'd like to change a couple of things. One is I would actually like to change donors' perceptions and definitions of what scale and what systems change really means. When we only look at scale as the largest number of people reached in a certain period of time, that is absolutely horizontal scale, but it is unlikely to be longitudinal scale or scale over generations. Community-based organizations have a really important role in affecting longitudinal or generational scale. And we need to start valuing generational scale if we want to have systems change we need to value it more, if not as much, as horizontal scale. I think the second thing that I would really like us to understand is community-based organizations don't see themselves as service providers. When they look at the future, 
they look at their ability to impact the system in which children live. And I'd like us to challenge those definitions of what a community-based organisation is and does. So much of our traditional thinking, our evaluation practices, academic literature, even the way we construct program or project calls for proposals, the way we fund um, international NGOs, all of those things projectize and limit community-based organisations into this very narrow definition as service providers. In fact, they are, at their core, community activists. They are community change makers. And long-term systemic shifts, particularly for children, will only happen when community is inspired to change its own behaviour. I would also like to see us valuing the voice and authenticity of community voices as equally as we value the voices of Global North academics, policy makers from large institutions, leaders of international organisations. We have been basing our definitions of change, of system shifts, of success, of impact on Global North generated paradigms, evidence, data, um, structures, frameworks, tools, all of those things have been developed by us in the Global North and they exclude the perspectives, the values, the voices of the very people we say we seek to help. Until we elevate some or representatives or all, <laughs> I would love all, but at least representatives of those voices to our policy debates, our funding debates, our definitions, our debates around definitions of impact and scale, until we elevate the voices of communities themselves, we will continue to do to communities. We will continue to believe that the way we think they should change is the way they will change, and we will not see systemic change, particularly not for children. So I would really wish for the future that we, and all particularly organisations like Firelight, can continue to tell the story of the impact that community organisations have, the importance of listening to them as interlocutors on behalf of community, the importance of them as agents of society and long-term scale and sustainability. They are not the antithesis of systems change and my dream for the future would be that we see that and we fund accordingly. 
I like your vision for the future. Again, thank you so much again, Nina Blackwell with Firelight Foundation for helping us on your virtual tour. Thank you so much, EJ. And again, I really appreciate you opening up these conversations. They are really important ones for all of us. Thank you. Thank you for listening.